0: Just before we get started, this episode discusses mental health. So if it raises anything for you, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. What are some of your biggest concerns when it comes to climate change?
1: Oh gosh.
0: Um... So this is Lucy Chen. Lucy's a student and young Australian active in the climate action space. She has a history with AYWC, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, and is currently working at WWF Australia. And like most of the next generation...
1: I think one of my biggest concerns is just for the future. I'm still figuring out my personal connection to climate change. I'm still not sure where my personal story fits into it. And what do yeah. you mean by your personal story? Um, when you go to, like, a climate action group or, like, organisation, the way they talk to people is, like, connecting a personal narrative to climate change, and that's how you connect with people. Because everyone has a reason why they really care about climate change. People really care about things like climate justice, for example, or food security, or energy, and I'm still like, "Uh, I'm not sure... A lot of people are like, oh, I'm involved because of my kids, uh, more about their future. But we are that generation that's going to experience the full effect of that. Like the baby boomers, by the time it really, really hits us, they're probably not going to be around for much longer or probably not even be around. We don't know. So I guess even just being a young person is a personal connection because we are going to have to face these consequences and we've grown up knowing about climate change and knowing about the effects it's going to have on our future and knowing that there's people in the world who are going to be dead when that happens, but they're still screwing it up for the rest of us. I know a lot of people are very demotivated by how things are continuing to happen. Like having Scott Morrison as our prime minister and Melissa Price as our environment minister, who was a previous lawyer for a mining company. People are super distrustful of the system. They sort of feel powerless and disempowered as individuals with nothing. And then there's these huge corporations that can just get away with whatever they want to do which is really sad to think about, um, and it's quite depressing, actually. Even just being an ordinary person like in Sydney who's relatively privileged and well-off and has air conditioning and has resources and infrastructure and good health care, I think people are very yeah, disempowered and annoyed at the system, but also feel like they can't do anything about it. That's how I perceive the general sentiment of people who
2: somewhat are engaged or care.
0: The worsening of climate events around the globe, rising temperatures and further strain on crucial natural resources, has left the planet's next generation, my generation, with not just an environmental crisis, but an existential one, where on top of feeling disempowered and removed from the decision-making that could pave the way for a greener future, there's an overwhelming sense of desperation and stress That it's too late. Much of the conversation around climate change up until now has been focused on the gravity of the damage, the science, the projections, changing weather patterns. But what's becoming clear is the significance of the personal narrative, and how it's not only affecting the planet, but its people. Today on the show, how climate change is shaping up to be a mental health disaster. This is Think Health, I'm Jake Morecambe. What do we know about the mental health impacts of climate change? What do we know currently?
2: What we know is mostly by inference. Establishing the impacts of climate change on any aspect of health is really difficult. So, for example, how do you know how much of someone's heart attack was caused by climate change versus other factors is a very difficult thing to do.
0: Helen Berry, Professor of Climate Change and Mental Health at the University of Sydney, says, while it's hard to weed out the role climate change may play, there are ways to determine the burden it has on mental health and how that burden is growing.
2: We know that mental health problems increase during heatwaves, as do all sorts of other health problems. So we can look at current and past data and match up, for example, how many hospital admissions there were for mental health problems during particular heatwaves in different parts of the country. And from that, we can work out what heat does to people's mental health from the point of view of hospital admissions.
0: Then taking those figures, they can line them up against heatwave projections and begin to map the extent of the burden as these events become more frequent.
2: The same kind of thing can be done for uh, general mental health across the population or suicides.
0: However, Helen says what makes this area so complex and hard to quantify is not only can severe weather affect the mental health of the general population, it can also trigger those living with an existing mental illness.
2: There are some psychotic disorders which are quite well controlled by a drug called lithium. Lithium is unstable over 35 degrees. So if you have a psychotic disorder for which you're taking lithium and the weather's very, very hot, your drug might not be effective for you and that that can prevent the benefits of the drug you're taking.
0: While there are a growing pool of international researchers pushing these ideas forward, Global documents, such as the Lancet countdown on health and climate change, continue to prioritise physical health, such as respiratory problems and the spread of infectious diseases, over mental health. And why do you think it trailed behind looking into, I guess, the physical repercussions of something like climate change?
2: I think for the same reason it trails behind in everything. One is it's highly stigmatised and misunderstood, so people still feel very ashamed of mental health problems, um, their own or their close relatives' problems, and they're very poorly understood still. People still have a whole lot of strange ideas about what mental health problems are. And the other is, I think that it's always been the Cinderella of health, so there's been no history of health services for mental health compared to other types of health problem and very little research funding, so it's just been an underfunded area from the point of view of services and research and that flows over into climate change and mental health research. So to the extent that there's any funding of research into climate change, it's not into mental health.
0: Without a complete picture, but at the same time recognising the global population is growing and that more of us are likely to be affected by some sort of climate crisis, Helen says it's safe to conclude the volume of people presenting to a mental health service will increase. But the question is, do you think health services are ready for that?
2: They're absolutely not. Health services generally are not ready for what's coming. And I mean GPs, hospitals, you know, all sorts of health services. But mental health services particularly, because mental health services are already so grossly underfunded and pressured they're already so unable to meet the need that any increase in the need, particularly any sharp increase in the need, will be well beyond their capacity to manage.
0: Emergency departments and police stations are the typical front lines for mental health service delivery. But for those on the front line of environmental disaster... Jennifer First from the Disaster and Community Crisis Centre at the University of Missouri-Columbia says the immediate concern is to ensure physical safety. Do you think that in this context of immediate post-disaster that mental health is brushed under the rug?
3: I don't think I would say it's being swept under the rug, but I do think that there is multiple steps, I guess, in recovery and much of the first are immediate safety, physical safety.
0: Jennifer explains mental health care post-disaster, including climate events, is provided in two different environments, the acute and chronic.
3: By acute, I mean immediate reactions. So people may display things like shock, stress reactions, so they might be experiencing anxiety, they might be emotionally upset, And then those acute reactions sometimes become more chronic. What I mean by chronic would be ongoing. So say after the first four to six weeks, if individuals are still showing trauma, shock, stress in their social relationships, sleeping problems, that's when it starts to possibly impact their ability to function.
0: If we're looking Mm -hmm. to the acute environment, What do those services look like and how might they be different than standard chronic mental health services?
3: So when we're talking about mental health services during the acute phase or to acute reactions, evidence has shown interventions such as psychological first aid. It's a type of intervention that is very much about meeting the survivor's basic needs first, providing them with comfort, care, safety and then it begins to move into as time goes on helping an individual with coping skills just trying to get individuals back on their feet connecting them with social supports and then in terms of long-term mental health services connect individuals who are experiencing these more long-term effects like post-traumatic stress disorder or depression connect them to more formal support a clinician or counsellor or a social worker.
0: Having care workers that are members of the community affected deliver services like psychological first aid, as opposed to flying people in, Jennifer emphasises is crucial in ensuring access. But explains there remain a series of systemic barriers that prevent, in many cases, those living on the front lines from accessing the care they need, both physical and mental
3: disproportionately, I would say that marginalized individuals and communities often bear the brunt of these types of events. Thinking about things like language barriers. So if all of the services and resources are only in one language and a community is multilingual, in addition to social inequalities like racism, there's also sexism. I've collaborated and led in research following the, we had a major EF5 tornado in Joplin, Missouri, back in 2011. Recently also looked at events following Hurricane Harvey in Houston. In these studies, what we've captured, we've mainly focused on looking at longer term post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, but have also looked at strains on social relationships. So some of the work I've done has highlighted that gender-based violence has been found to increase in prevalence and severity for women following a large-scale disaster event.
0: And to insert climate change, Jennifer's concern is not only are mental health resources already stretched too thin, but more frequent climate events placing greater pressure on these services leaves these social groups even more vulnerable. The devastating effects of climate change also pose a very dark reality for a number of communities around the world – forced migration, where the xenophobic conversations around the availability of space, job security, and cultural clashes all work to diminish the mental scarring of being forcibly removed from your homeland. Helen Berry, Professor of Mental Health and Climate Change at the University of Sydney says, it's not only the prospect of losing the life you once had that can be damaging, but too, the process of resettlement.
2: So migrants can be, and often are, particularly in an unplanned situation, traumatised by their migration experience and the fact they had to migrate and the loss of their homeland, um, sometimes permanently. And by what might have happened during the migration itself, you know, where they they may have sustained huge economic losses or received injuries or lost people close to them, all sorts of, you know, really traumatising, terrible things can happen in the process of migrating, particularly when it's a forced emergency kind of situation. And then people can find that they they don't like the place they've ended up. Um, and, you know, if they've ended up there permanently then and they don't like it, that's a real problem. They might not like the culture or the food or the climate or or, you know, or the look of the place and and they may just be, you know, desperately homesick and so on. And when it comes to migration in relation to climate change, I think we need to approach very thoughtfully and with a great deal of foresight. And luckily we've got a lot of hindsight that we can use to help us understand what some of the key factors are to look at and what to expect and sorts of things we should plan for. Um, and we should be planning. In Australia, we have numerous neighbours, not just on islands, but um, in neighbouring countries who may need for climate change related reasons to um, to make Australia their home um, temporarily or permanently. And um, that's not a conversation that we're having and it's one I think we should be having publicly and you know, across the country.
0: And we're talking about post-disaster responses here. Are there any pre-disaster efforts? Absolutely. Jennifer first.
3: So thinking about how can we begin to build coping and resilience responses in a community even before an event like this occurs.
0: How do you go about making a community resilient?
3: Typically, bringing together various systems in a community healthcare, emergency management, schools, behavioural health clinics, bringing those groups together to think about and prepare for if an event like this happened and many states are doing this.
0: That there are populations around the world integrating services and building community resilience to prepare for their next and not their first climate disaster, continues to do little in holding global communities to account, namely developed nations whose reckless and climate insensitive actions have forced vulnerable populations into crisis in the first place.
2: Climate change is being caused primarily by the wealthy countries and is felt primarily by the poor countries.
0: And while people in a place like Australia might question how the short staffing of psychological first aid workers in a country rattled by climate disaster would have anything to do with them, Helen argues it's this missing link, a missing link in the public psyche and global discourse, that climate change is an issue of systems, and that not only do the actions of conglomerates and governments impact developing nations, but cause social and economic disruption on their own soil.
2: It's not a matter of climate change causes more heat waves than they cause heart failure and mental health problems, it's not that simple. And climate change itself is an outcome of, um, of a bigger system, if you like, about how the world uses power and, and resources and who gets to control that and who gets to say how those things are used. So if you like, you know, climate change has arisen because we as a human race have misused planetary resources. And it's not we as a human race in its entirety, it's a particular sector of the human race that has done that. And that in itself is part of the dynamic that plays into how climate change is related to mental health. So if you have major floods affecting um, towns and cities as well as uh, rural areas, there's a limit to how many times even the wealthiest countries in the world can afford to rebuild roads and bridges and rail lines. And there's a limit to how many times insurance companies can afford to pay for people to rebuild their houses or fix up their fire damage and so on. So all of these things place enormous economic pressure on communities and on nations. And those things mean, you know, the dollars that have to be spent on preparing and repairing after climate-related weather disasters are dollars that aren't available for health and education and other things that we might want to spend our taxpayer dollars on.
0: Helen is pushing for mental health indicators to be included in international climate documents, such as the Lancet Countdown, from where they're currently absent. Did you say in the global report there were no mental health indicators?
2: Yeah, there are no mental health indicators yet.
0: An Australian national document, the first of its kind around the world, was launched today. The Medical Journal of Australia Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change Australian policy inaction threatens lives. The document outlines it's crucial to frame climate change through a systems-thinking approach and, more importantly, reframe the discussion to not place the burden, as it so often feels, on the individual.
2: A lot of advice around climate change and mental health is focused on the individual. You know, telling people to eat less meat and cycle and walk and do meditation and mindfulness and go to counselling if they need to and all that kind of thing and I think they're kind of missing the point in a way because as individuals there's a limit to what we can do and I think placing a lot of pressure on individuals to personally tackle the problems of climate change is actually a risk factor for mental health more so than helpful but if we um encourage people and help people, you know, if governments are able to provide some support and assistance to take action in groups with like-minded people, to come up with some ideas and start to implement a few of them, then you'd be much more likely to to feel capable of participating in that than doing it all on your own.
0: These group-led approaches are a concept familiar to young activist Lucy Chen, who says collective action makes the existential threat of climate change seem not so existential.
1: One of the recent examples is the Wentworth by-election. Because of the thousands of door knocks that we did, I was up in the get-up office calling like about three or four nights over three weeks, just calling ordinary people and like talking to them and like making them consider, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, show the Liberal Party that They can't just keep doing this and have no consequences. This is going to come with a consequence of losing their seats and losing that parliamentary majority that they had. Being part of this movement of people who really care is really, really empowering. If you're isolated from people who care about the issue enough to do something about it, then you'll feel a lot more isolated than if you were around this whole bunch of people who are so motivated. They put in so much time and energy. Even if you yourself do not feel like you have the capacity to... Do stuff about things. It's very empowering to be part of that and to see that people are doing things about it and that slowly but surely we can make a difference.
2: Yeah.
0: Increasingly, people's experience of climate change is being described as a collective trauma. Where typically we ascribe trauma to an individual. Now Groups of people and communities are all living the same experience. And while the volume of people subject to climate disaster will increase, there'll also be more of us banding together to do something about it. Think Health is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Health is made in the two S.E.R. studios, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on iTunes. I'm Jake Morecambe. Catch you next time.